So what I think you can unlock here, having a crypto native form of yield that's captured within this instrument becomes incredibly interesting when you start to think about how that might compose into different DeFi applications and, and sit on the balance sheets of the other project. Hey everybody, Tanner here with Wagner Ventures. On today's episode, we have Guy Young, founder and CEO at Athena Labs. For anyone who's new, this is the Wagner Ventures podcast, where we do snapshots with interesting builders and founders from across Web3. Check out wagnerventures.io to learn more about the syndicate behind the podcast. But for now, let's get into it with Guy at Athena Labs. All right. Hey, everybody. I'm here today with Guy Young, founder and CEO at Athena Labs. Guy, how are you doing today? Yeah, good. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks so much. I'm excited to chat. I know we've got a lot of good stuff to talk about. So, you know, I definitely I definitely do want to talk about a lot of the awesome work happening at Athena Labs. But I think first, just kind of as, as an introduction, would love to dive in a little bit on you because you were you were originally in TradFi, kind of working across banking, hedge funds, PE firms, most recently at Cerberus Capital Management, which is obviously $50 billion fund, very well known. So I think I'm curious, can you can you tell us a little bit about your journey from TradFi to DeFi and really like what made you make the jump? Yeah, sure. So I actually had a friend who was a DeFi founder back in 2019. We had actually met when I was working at Cerberus. And he, he sort of got me introduced to DeFi back then, was investing into it and, and fascinated by it while I was at my day job at Cerberus and spent sort of three years investing into crypto through the last cycle until basically Luna collapsed midway through 22. Arthur Hayes came out with one of his thought pieces just after, after that collapse. And he outlined his vision for how we might think about a scalable crypto native solution for stable coins. I'd read his piece and had been sort of a long time admire of his work and uh, yeah, I was just inspired by by the way that he thought about things and decided to to quit my job to to start building out the vision that he had. Perfect. Okay. So can you unpack a little bit of what Athena Labs is and and maybe a little bit about the genesis of the concepts, maybe in a little bit more detail, kind of the specifics of what kind of attracted you to it? Yeah, sure. So Arthur's core idea was something that had actually been taking place on BitMEX since since the very early days. So if you remember back to then, BitMEX was a BTC denominated exchange where you'd actually use Bitcoin as a margin collateral for the derivative positions that you'd trade on the exchange, which meant that if you're a trader there and you wanted to get back into a dollar position, they would actually use Bitcoin as a core collateral, take out a short perpetual position against that. And those two things would net off to create a synthetic dollar position. So really, it's it's an evolution of that idea, which is which has been around for a while. And what Athena Labs is trying to do is is turn that into a product and essentially tokenize that that basis trade into a stablecoin. We have made two small sort of iterations to to Arthur's core idea. The first one is we're starting with staked ETH instead of Bitcoin. The core reason there is that you obviously get a, a positive carry now to to holding ETH with with ETH staked rewards. And the other one was just how we thought about integrating with centralized exchanges to ensure that we had sufficient liquidity to scale the product into the billions. So yeah, that, that was sort of the core genesis for the idea from Arthur and, and some of the small adjustments that we made. Got it. Okay, perfect. You know, so a Coindesk article I read kind of explained USDE like this, where it kind of described the mechanics as, as what you basically kind of introduced us to, where the coin will maintain its peg to the US dollar by utilizing user provided collateral to hedge the price exposure by betting against Ethereum using perpetual swaps. And the setup aims to balance any losses or gains by either asset so that the stablecoin holds consistent at $1. So can you maybe talk a little bit about, uh, more about how that works and, and why you chose to maintain the peg this way? Yeah. So if you think about collateralizing a, a short perpetual position 
with a volatile crypto asset, what's essentially happening there is if the price of Bitcoin or ETH, which is used as a collateral asset, goes up by 50% and you've got a hedge that's in the opposite direction, in effect, what's happening is that the, the perpetual is being offset by the change in the underlying price of the asset. And so they sort of move one for one in lockstep so that you always have a dollar position out of those two things netting off. That's that's the concept of how it sort of holds constant at $1. But really, the reason that we'd choose to do this is is driven by two core reasons. So the first one is really about scalability. So I think a lot of the on-chain stablecoins that you've seen, whether that's MakerDAO or some of the other CDP designs, requires you to basically put up more than 150 and sometimes 200% collateral to mint the stablecoin on the other side. What that means is that it's at an incredibly capital inefficient to, to grow that stablecoin because it's it's tied to the leverage demand for for ETH. And so here you're only needing $1 of collateral that goes into the system to create $1 of stablecoin, which we think is a pretty powerful outcome. The other one here is is just around the actual stability of the system itself. So you can think about the risk of stablecoins becoming under-collateralized, really with reference to what, what is the collateral backing that sits behind it. And so if you're backing it with volatile crypto assets and you haven't neutralized that, that volatility in any way, you always run the risk that the system becomes under-collateralized if the backing asset falls enough below the stablecoin outstanding supply. Luna was obviously a good example of how that works at a, at a very far extreme. But you did see that in the March 2020 crash with MakerDAO as well, where the system was slightly under-collateralized during, during that sell-off. Got it. Okay, perfect. So according to DeFi Llama, total, total stablecoin market cap right now is around $124 billion, But there's obviously been no shortage of, of drama with stablecoins in the past year and a half. And so I guess I'm curious, like, how will USDE differ from the other stablecoins in the market? And Maybe what, what are some of the trade-offs your teams had to navigate both on the pros and cons side as you guys have thought about approaching things the way you are? Yeah, so I think you can you can conceptualize this as a spectrum between purely centralized stablecoins, which are extremely scalable, so USDC and USDT. Obviously, there's nothing decentralized about those designs, but for all intents and purposes, they're, they're infinitely scalable because you just need US Treasury sitting behind them in a bank to issue a digital receipt against that. On the opposite end, you've got something that looks a bit like liquidity, which is an on-chain CDP stablecoin design where it really does look as close to decentralized as you can imagine. There's really no governance that goes into the maintenance of that system. But I think if you just compare the outstanding sort of supply of both of those stablecoins, you see a pretty wide divergence. So you've got Tether at close to 85 billion, and then liquidity, last I checked, was around 300 million. So it's you know almost a, a 300 times difference between the size of those two things. And then... Everything else sort of sits between that that spectrum where you have other CDP designs like Mako, which are a bit bigger than Liquidity, but don't have as much of that decentralized element because a lot of the backing that sits behind that starts to resemble what you see with centralized stablecoins. So around 50% of the backing that sits within MakerDown now is, is either USDC or RWAs, so bonds sitting in the real world. And that obviously introduces some pretty concerning censorship elements to that design. I think we sit somewhere between between those two extremes and we do make explicit trade-offs to, to achieve the scalability that I described earlier. So we aren't purely decentralized because we are we are trying to access centralized exchanges in order to benefit from the liquidity. But in doing so, we did ask ourselves the question, is there a way that we retain the most important pieces of DeFi? And rather than thinking about decentralization as a super broad and undefined term, we tried to narrow in on really the core properties that we thought were worth retaining. 
And from our perspective, that was ensuring that we had users' assets sitting off of centralized exchanges. So disaggregating that custody from, from the trading settlement and execution. And then the other piece was just around the transparency where it felt like we'd be doing our users a bit of a disservice if, if we didn't try to make this as transparent as possible with having sort of lifetime views of the solvency of the underlying stablecoin. Got it. Fascinating. Okay. So another thing your team's working on is really like an internet bond on top of the stablecoin. And my understanding is that the bond token functions in kind of a similar way as a US treasury, but without ties to a government or a centralized banking institution. So I'd love to maybe turn the conversation here and, and hear if you could unpack a little bit, maybe what this enables and a little bit of how it works too. Yeah. So you can think about this as when we're putting on that, that delta neutral basis trade that I described, you really have two forms of yield that are captured there. You have the first, which is the staked Ethereum returns on the spot leg of that transaction. And then on the hedging side, you typically get paid to put on the short for a short Ethereum position. And those two yields, roughly, if we just look back over the last year, staked ETH yields ranging between 4 to 6%. And then the, the basis within ETH futures markets uh, at around sort of 6 to 8%. So when you add those two things together, you get a pretty interesting unlevered yield in, in the low teens. And what's interesting about that yield is it's really crypto native, right? There's no exogenous source of yield coming in from the real world or dependent on anything in the real world. It's really generated fully internally within crypto. It's also an extremely scalable form of yield because it leverages the full size of the derivative market in all centralized exchanges. And then obviously, staked Ethereum is a pretty large asset in terms of its ability to to take in huge flows to support a stablecoin with that underlying yield. And I think the last piece just to mention around why we think it's quite interesting as an asset is, is really just thinking about the role that the US Treasury plays in the real world. So I think it's it's pretty much the most important financial instrument that exists on Earth. It sits on the balance sheet of every single bank, pension fund, insurance fund, and then sovereign balance sheets as well. And really, that's because it has three core qualities. The first is that it's stable. The other one is that it's liquid. And then the third is that it has an embedded yield. And we don't really have an analogous asset sitting within DeFi, where a lot of the backing behind other stable coins or actually the assets sitting within money markets, it's usually USDC. Um, and that obviously has no yield, but it does have the property of being stable. So what I think you can unlock here, having a, a crypto native form of yield that's captured within this instrument becomes incredibly interesting when you start to think about how that might compose into different DeFi applications and and sit on the balance sheets of these other projects. So that's something that we're incredibly excited about. We think it's an asset that clearly is needed within DeFi if you just have a reference point to the real world. And we think it unlocks a lot of interesting new innovation that can come from that composability. Yeah, it seems like a really important step. It's fascinating. Okay, so maybe one last question here about Athena Labs before we jump into maybe some some questions about sort of the space at large, where, you know, this is a bit of a recurring question. I think I'm just always curious, building something from scratch is obviously not easy, right? And so I think I'm curious, what were some of the earliest challenges associated with building what you guys have come to build? And how did you and your team think about solving for those challenges? Yeah, I think some of the biggest issues with what we're doing is a lot of it is actually fundamentally net new. So it's not existing purely within DeFi and we are accessing centralized liquidity and making that step or trying to create that connected tissue between DeFi and CeFi isn't something that has been done in the past. And so quite a lot of that was new and and required a lot of, of building from scratch. So it wasn't sort of copying open source GitHubs that existed within DeFi now. And so really creating that infrastructure layer between DeFi and CeFi 
was a pretty big lift from our side, but we thought worthwhile in, in order to unlock that scalability piece. The other one was just around staked ETH as an asset. So really that hasn't been used as a margining instrument within crypto until this year, until we sort of brought us market. It's something that was uniquely unlocked by Chappella, where you obviously have the ability to withdraw from staked ETH to ETH now, which just means that the characteristics of that asset allow it to be used as a margin instrument, but no one had sort of actually taken it to different derivative platforms and actually pushed it forward. So it's been quite a lot of work that sits above actually just the engineering bit at the bottom to enable the actual product itself. And that obviously came with with getting a lot of these exchanges on board and making sure that they're aligned when it comes to the incentives of the product itself. So yeah, I think it's been challenging to try to do things that are are genuinely quite new and innovative when it comes to linking DeFi to CeFi. Uh, but we think ultimately the work that's gone in now not only sort of creates a better product for our users, but is also a bit of a moat uh, that exists within what we've created where it's less easy to replicate from other projects. Love it. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about sort of Web3 crypto space at large with our remaining time here. So first question I would have is, you know, what do you view as some of the biggest obstacles to sort of mass crypto adoption or even DeFi adoption to kind of pick that one vertical? Yeah, I think you often hear people talking about UX and I think we do over-index on that actually quite a bit. What we've seen is that if you create great products, people do usually try to find a way to get in there regardless of UX. So whether that was NFTs in 21, I think you could you could say that that broadly reached some level of adoption despite the fact that the UX and entry point wasn't as clean. And I think you're seeing the same thing with stablecoins now, right, where you've seen Visa, PayPal, all these different Web2 incumbents start to take it a bit more seriously and integrate with what they're doing. So really, I think it starts at the product, which is we need more useful products that people actually want to use. And as sort of UX and security catches up, I think that that naturally allows more people to come in. But it really starts with a, a product that catch, captures people's attention and makes it feel like it's something that they actually want to use. Definitely, yeah. Okay. So maybe other side of the coin of that question where, you know, what do you view as some of the more exciting trajectories for Web3 more broadly, or or maybe DeFi in particular from your vantage point, where if if the last question was more about like, you know, what what's going wrong? Maybe this one's about like, what are, what are you seeing from your vantage point in the space that is going right and that people are thinking about the right way? Yeah, I think maybe just speaking within like my domain, I think stablecoins seem to have reached some level of escape velocity in terms of acceptance from Web2, whether that's finance or, or tech businesses. I think that it naturally sort of sits at the nexus between crypto and the real world where people look at stablecoins and can immediately understand the value proposition and why it's just a 10x better product than, than what you see in the real world. And so I'm quite excited to see where that goes. I think we're really in, in the early innings of of that type of integration with those types of businesses. I think the important thing to note here as well is it's it's pretty interesting to see that they're, they're doing this at the bottom of the hype cycle for crypto. So where in the last cycle, you'd see a lot of marketing type partnerships sort of come, come out and be quite loud about how they're integrating an NFT with whatever. That to me just seems like a bit of a gimmick when you compare to what's happening at the bottom of the bear market with people taking very thoughtful decisions around their business and how they actually want to embrace this technology going forward. So to me, that's actually the thing that's probably most exciting, which is it feels like we have found one killer product in stablecoins, and it's at the very early innings of, of sort of exporting that from from crypto to, to users in the real world. Definitely, definitely. Okay. So, 
you know, as someone who was previously in TradFi, what do you make of sort of all of these major institutions starting to dip their toes in the water of Web3? I'm, I'm curious specifically, like, do you think this trend is going to continue? You've mentioned early innings, you know, maybe your thoughts as kind of having been an insider to that world. What do you think that continuation looks like if you do think it's going to continue? Yeah, unfortunately, I think with DeFi, we're maybe actually just a bit too early with it. And when I say too early, I mean, like two, three cycles too early. I think a lot of institutions sort of look at DeFi, think it's an in- interesting sort of um, petri dish experiment, but like isn't a place that they are willing to actually leave material funds. So until we sort out sort of security on chain and some of the consistent hacks and bugs within smart contracts, I don't think you can expect those type of players to come in in any material way. So I think that when you're looking at just the pure DeFi side, I'm perhaps a bit more sort of pragmatic and cautiously optimistic around them coming in. But I think that there are significant challenges for us to, to get over until they do sort of embrace that fully. I think the trend continues. It's just going to be a slower trend than people expect. Got it. Okay. That's super interesting. Okay. So another recurring question on this show, if I were to say the future of crypto is blank, how would you fill in the blank? Uphill battle. Uphill battle. Got it. How Could you elaborate maybe a little bit on on what that means to you? I, you've kind of, even in that last question, you kind of did unpack a little bit what you mean, but is that is that kind of what you have in mind? Yeah, no, I think it's, it's more fundamentally, it's trying to undermine a bunch of different existing power structures, right? You have governments, incumbent, incumbent businesses, whether it's in, in finance or, or outside of it. And I think generally the the some of the behaviors that you saw sort of through the last cycle where it felt like we're getting towards institutional acceptance. And then I think threw away that credibility with a lot of the blowups you saw in the last couple of years. It's just going to be a much more difficult road, I think, to that endpoint of adoption, both on the regulatory side, which I think you've seen very clearly right over the last 18 months with some of the hostility coming out of the US. But then also just, as I said, institutional adoption and acceptance of the product. I think a lot of people feel burnt in the way that they, they sort of engaged with crypto in the last cycle. And it's going to take a while for us to to rebuild their reputation, I think, outwardly. Yeah, it's a fascinating question of of what does rebuilding trust or credibility look like so recently to, you know, some pretty significant credibility damaging events. I do think people maybe don't talk about that quite enough about that that rebuilding process. So that's that's an interesting that's an interesting perspective. I'm curious then, you know, in light of that uphill battle, what advice would you have for crypto founders, especially at this particular moment in the market cycle, where I think I think we both see a lot of really fascinating activity happening. People are absolutely building, and so I'm curious. Uphill battle, yes, but you know, if for those who've who've taken on the taken up the mantle and do want to build in crypto, what advice would you have for them from your experience? Yeah, first, I just preface it by saying I'm probably not in the position to give advice. All we've done so far is is raise a seat raise a seed round, haven't even delivered our first product. So maybe just take what I say with a pinch of salt. But I do think it's worthwhile just trying to be very honest with yourself around the idea and the product that you're building, what is sort of the reasonable upside case and whether that's actually a fundable business. I think the next sort of five to 10 years might look significantly different to the last five to 10 when it comes to investors' ability to underwrite businesses which can't sort of translate to real value in a very clear way. And so I think a lot of ideas in crypto are sort of interesting academic experiments or interesting public good type tooling products, but aren't really sort of venture scale backable businesses. I think this is type, the type of moment where you just need to be very honest about what is actually the upside of, of the product you're providing in terms of what people can actually pay for it going forward. 
And if you don't see a viable path that you sort of look at on a backwards envelope maths, then I think it would just it's sort of the right time to reassess whether you're spending your time on the right thing. So I think you just need to be very brutal and honest with your own time and selfish with how you sort of spend the next couple of years and just try to take a view out and think what within this space might actually capture value and is the idea that you're shooting for really a market size and value that that is sort of fundable. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I think that's really great advice. So, okay, Guy, what is your team working on right now? We've we've talked a little bit about it, but anything you want to share about sort of what is on your guys' mind right now? And then also, what's the best way for people to follow along on the journey? Yeah, so we're, we're just coming up to our guarded pre-launch. So that's us opening up the product next month for early participants to come in and test, provide liquidity in, and just get it in the right sort of shape in a safe and secure way for the public to enter a few months after. And so, yeah, we're heads down, super focused on the product at the moment and just very excited to get it out to the public because we think it's a product that the space really needs. And we've been, yeah, as I said, extremely excited to just get it into people's hands. In terms of where you can find us, Athena's on Athena underscore labs and then the website's athena.fi. And I'm on, on Twitter on leptocardic underscore. Perfect. Guy, thank you so much for the time. Really fascinating work you guys are doing. And I can't wait to see how everything progresses over the coming weeks, months, years. So thank you for coming on the show and have a great rest of your week here. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. All right. Bye-bye.